0: Okay, this is probably a time you probably feel like going to bed rather than listening to me. <laughs> but nevertheless, <laughs> I'm going to talk to you for a little bit <clears throat> about the practice and about why we're doing this, coming circling back to some of the questions that we raised last night about the very nature of what we're engaged in when we're engaging in this kind of practice particularly within the Buddhist traditions and here I speak very much from the point of view or the standpoint of the early tradition in seeking or searching for the heart of reality two things are really required in Pali these are called yonasama wise attention and uh, Clear comprehension, Sati Sampajanya. These are the two terms that are required. And before I get to discussing those, I want to talk about their opposites. <laughs> but it's always like to be negative, you see. We like to talk about the opposites. If you get clear about what, how we're malfunctioning, you might get clear about how we're functioning. Or well, we can function to an optimum degree as opposed to the mess that we see in ordinary life. So unwise attention. You know, lack of clear comprehension. These are the opposites, obviously, the antonyms of what I've just spoken about. Well, these lead us into the mess that we find ourselves in. And this mess is characterized by a particular feeling tone. And this feeling tone that runs, as I said last night, through the warp and woof of our lives is this feeling tone of dukkha, what's usually translated as suffering. It's a, it's a multifaceted term it means much, much, much more than just suffering it literally means and I think this works quite well in English it means a dirty space <laughs> an unpleasant space to be in it was often used to refer to the hole in the wheel into which the axle fitted of a cart and as it went round it was packed with dirt and grease and grit and it was rather wobbly because the wheel of sangsara, the wheel of our recurrent behavior, our circular behavior, doesn't run smooth at all. So it's a rather wobbly wheel we're on at the moment. And this is the problem in a sense that the meditation traditions within the Buddhist tradition were really brought to Deal with. They were brought into being to deal with this problem of dukkha, this problem of, and I shall leave the ordinary, the normal translation, suffering, because that's the one you'll get in the books. But it really means this immense sense of dissatisfaction across our lives, of not getting what we want out of life. Questions of meaning, questions of value, and Questions really, about the way that we fundamentally live our lives, and when we don 't live our lives in such a way, dukkha is the is, is the recurrent result, and it happens again and again and again and again and again. This is why this term and you 've probably come across it if you 've done any reading on Buddhist literature, in Buddhist literature at all this thing is called sangsara uh, for those of you who think it is it 's not a perfume it 's actually a description <laughs> of this recurrent behaviour, this going round in circles, it's actually derived from a Pali term and Sanskrit term, which means to go round in circles, and really characterises our behaviour. This feeling of going round and round and round, doing the same things and making the same mistakes. So, if you've made the mis- if you're making mistakes now, you made at earlier years in your life. You probably are. This is this is really the story about it. Because, in a sense, we're still under the same psychological influences. Uh, as we were in the past, as we are in the present. And it gives rise to these recurrent patterns of behaviour. Um, I was saying to a group the other week, from the Buddha's point of view, we all have obsessive-compulsive disorder. You know, we all keep doing the same things again and again and again and again and don't really seem to learn by it. And the reason why we don't seem to learn is because we don't have clear comprehension and we don't have wise attention We don't place our attentions wisely. And this does not, I would like to emphasize at this point, unless you think this is a kind of negative diatribe about our condition, it's not. It doesn't make us bad people because we keep on doing this. There's very few people, I would hesitate to say, in this world who are truly bad. Most people are trying to do their best. They're trying to find some degree of happiness, some degree of contentment, some degree of stillness, no matter in what area they think that lies. Now in that, that I've just said, hangs a big tail, because in a way, and I was going into this a little with you last night, in a way that's part of the problem, is because we pay unwise attention to the things that we think can deliver for us that happiness, that contentment, that pleasure, that Peace that perhaps we seek for. I don't know. I mean, I'm faced with an audience like yourself, and I think to myself, well, what word would you probably use? You might all use different words here, you know, but I think the general feeling is we're looking for some kind of stability, some kind of lack of confusion. Um, And one of the things that characterize this state of distress, actually, which I refer to as dukkha, is confusion. We're just confused. We don't know our way around. Most of the time it's being like, I don't know, dumped in the middle of nowhere with no road map. That's called birth. (laughs) You know, and we have to muddle through. And sometimes you muddle through and you find a path which takes you a certain, certain way, and then you end up in a thicket. And you've got to extricate yourself and come back again. And Life is a bit like that. There is no road map that we've been given. In a sense, the only map that we have, I suppose, is the societal one and the ones that our parents give us to a degree. And if they've made a mess, then we end up making similar messes about it because we follow um, those things that we are given. But in terms of our existentiality, we literally don't know our, our way around the place where we are. So no wonder we're confused. No wonder we make the mistakes that we do. And the whole process of this path, the path of the Buddha's way and the path of the meditative way which comes out of his teaching is a path to lead to the eradication of confusion and to that clear comprehension and to a degree of equanimity in life. In fact, I would go so far as to say that equanimity itself can be equated with the goal of, which you probably all know, even you've never accounted it in this, uh, in this situation, this goal which is called nirvana in Sanskrit and called nibbana in Pali. You know, the, the, the stilling, the cooling, um, the going out of the fundamental flaws that drive us in a particular way into the problems that we have. Now these fundamental psychological flaws which are governing... This form of behaviour that takes us further into confusion, that takes us further into the mess which often becomes our lives. We tend to go through life, don't we, and there's, look behind us, there's probably a, a wake of detritus and stuff behind us um, that we never intended but somehow has ended up there you know, as we go through simply because of this lack of clarity, this lack of seeing where we're going and what we're doing. Now the root of this, the root of this fundamental confusion is in a sense encapsulated in three terms. And these are so important that Buddha actually claims in one very, very powerful discourse of his that everything is burning from them. Everything is a flame. He said, the whole world is a flame. This occurs in a in a particular text in the Pali Canon. He said, Everything is burning, the whole world is burning. You, I, everything, nose, tongue. Is everything is burning from greed, aversion, and delusion. Everything is aflame with these three things. I don't think it looks too much it takes too much looking around the world today to see some degree of truth in that. You know, even if you don't want to subscribe to it totally, that there is a lot of greed, aversion, and delusion. But the Buddha isn't just pointing to the greed, aversion and delusion that is out there but the greed and the aversion and the delusion that is within here, within our own hearts, within our own minds. And in a sense, all of the negative psychology, the anger, the aversion, the avarice, the miserliness, the lack of generosity, the jealousies, all of these things which arise in us from time to time, not ever-present, but they certainly can be triggered very quickly, All of those arise out of those three roots, the fear, the anxiety. All of these negative psychological traits arise out of these three things. If you like, they're rooted in them. They're the three roots of negative behavior within us. And what this path attempts to do, the good news, I've given you the bad news, uh, what this path attempts to do is to uproot those roots, to release us from the sway of greed, aversion, and, of course, the big one, delusion, which I'm really translating here as this fundamental confusion about being in the world and what we're doing here. Now, because we're under the sway of these three things, then, of course, as I've been trying to characterise it, our lives are often one really exhibiting the confusion I describe, often looking for happiness, contentment, peace, in things of the world which never can deliver it for us. So much so that the fundamental confusion that many of us are under the sway of, of course, is a confusion between being and having. And I think this is one that predominates the Western world. How would I translate that? Well, we are what we have. We live in a culture of acquisition. So much so that status and power and wealth and everything is down often to the possession of wealth, down to the possession of goods and artefacts and all sorts of stuff. And this makes us what we are. It's very sad. I think that this this fundamental confusion has gone on. It's really almost, well, it's very much exemplified even if you learn another language. I don't know how many of you have learned another language. But when you learn another language, what are the first two verbs that you learn? to be and to have yeah. these are the first two verbs that you ever learn when you start to learn another language because they're easy verbs generally to learn or they're irregular verbs so we confuse the, our sense of being with what we possess um, but unfortunately of course what, does, what comes out what's the outcome of this possession insecurity insecurity Because we don't want to lose what we have. And when I say have, I often mean even our relationships, our relationships of possession, relationships of acquisition, rather than genuine relationships. They're almost based on this idea that you are for me. You are what I have. So we're in this state looking for happiness, but looking for it in all the wrong places. And I'll just use that word. Please substitute your own word if that word doesn't work for you. Often I find it rather flabby myself. And I actually think there are a lot better words. But if it's peace or contentment or happiness, whatever works for you. But if we're looking for the state, a state beyond the state of dissatisfaction which we normally experience, then one of the things that characterises our behaviour, just as I've suggested, is that we look for it in all the wrong places because our attention isn't directed wisely we look for it in the things of the world the artefacts as I've mentioned and this confusion comes about we look for it in others we look towards others in a sense to make us happy something they can never do what a burden to place on another human being you know I mean, I almost call it the death knell of relationship. Make me happy. Come on. <laughs> you know And it doesn't often happen that way. You know, happiness is something that comes out as a result of a real relationship, not out of a demand. You know. So we look to others and we look to things. Uh, the Western world in particular, um, obviously thrives or has done up until quite recently. On this demand for things, you know. And we imbibe it, we almost take it in from when we are children. You know, and we get under the sway of a mythology, and the mythology goes something like this If only I had, I would be happy. Or if only I was with, I would be happy. Or if only I lived there, I would be happy. Uh, and of course, it's a mythology. And you could mark the spot with every, whatever you want here. You know, If only I had X, I would be happy. You know? Because we all have different things we can place in that spot, often. And I'm sure, have you been there, have you done this, actually got to this point? You know, have you ever had this little mythology going around in your head? If only, I got, if only I, got with, and I got to this particular thing, or I had this particular thing, I'd be happy. Have you been there and done that? Because I certainly have. And in doing it, what happens? You get to that, you have the thing, you get to the place perhaps you want, you even might be with the person you supposedly really want to be with. And what happens? You're as miserable as hell <laughs> a lot of the time. You know? And I don't mean to say there isn't any pleasure in it at all, because there is. There's often pleasure initially, um, but it's not sustained. <coughs> the one thing about pleasure that we should really take cognizance of even in our enjoyment of it, is that it's temporary. It's uh, very evanescent. It arises and it passes away. This is a phrase, if you come you come to retreats and teachings, you'll hear again and again and again. Things arise and they pass away. Pleasure is no different. It's impermanent. It's arising and passing away. Now, what is the happiness that we're often seeking to find well, it's the pleasure that doesn't arise, well, that, that does arise but doesn't pass away. That's often what we think it is. This has resulted, and I've often said it in this room, this has often resulted in a culture which is basically trying to amuse itself to death you know, because it can't find you know, lasting happiness, anything which is sustaining that will continue because we put our trust, our faith, our confidence in all of the wrong things the wrong things in the sense of guaranteeing any stability so we put our trust in things which are inherently uncertain actually inherently impermanent, evanescent just going to go through what it does arising and passing away As a consequence of that, of course, that we are deeply, deeply unsettled. Perhaps one of the things that many of us search for, I would personally say the majority of human beings, but I'll leave it to judge in terms of your own experience, is that we're searching for some kind of certainties in life. We're searching for the things that are certain. The things that don't arise and pass away. The whole history of Western thought itself, actually, is one of looking for... Being, which is outside of time. A sense of the real which is outside of time. Now this is the very opposite of the message which the Buddha gives us. The only real is that which is within time. The only real is that which is changing. Towards the end of his life and I said this to one of the groups this afternoon one of the interview groups (laughs) at the end of his life the Buddha's supposed final recorded words were Um, well I'll put it in a less elegant fashion than it's put in the text but it's actually probably truer to the spirit of it which is all compounded things anything which is arising out of causes conditions all compounded things are impermanent get on with it that's basically his last recorded words what he's saying is how are you going to live in the face of this impermanence that's the challenge not to try and construct a mythological permanent realm somehow outside of time. What the Buddha is really pointing to is that any search, in his terms, for something outside of what we have here, which is merely arising and passing away, the impermanent nature of everything that is around us, including ourselves, is simply in search of a phantom in search of a chimera, something which really does not exist here. And his kind of phrase, actually in the text, it says something like, strive on diligently. It actually means get on with it. Get on with life in the face of this impermanence, but somehow make it meaningful. Because part of the problem has always been that when we hear the word impermanence and change, and we somehow attribute lack of meaning to that which we're engaged in. Yeah. So the, the real and the meaningful and that which has any real value is that which doesn't change. The Buddha is saying something completely opposite to that. Now even our own behaviour itself exhibits no permanency, no substantiality, no certainty. I mean, if there's one thing that's completely uncertain, it's most human beings about what they're going to do. You've only got to enter introspectively into looking at your own mind to see its monkey mind, as I mentioned last night, the jumping to and fro, lack of stability within it. Even our search for the so-called permanent for certainties is invested in things which themselves are actually changing. So they're not going to make us happy. Now the Buddha's message is one which is, in some sense, is a big, big challenge to us, not just in the contemporary world, but historically, throughout the two and a half thousand years of his teaching, which has come down to us. It's one of a radical challenge of how to live with change, how to live with radical contingency and impermanence. This is the big challenge, and the challenge is also there not to create hypothetical states which are unchanging, to which we can cling to, that we hope are rafts which we are going to attach our being to. So the radical challenge is to live this change day to day, minute to minute, as it is happening, rather than reject it. Because if we reject it, we are bound, and I mean this literally, to suffer. Because if we don't take the existential facts of our own position, our mortality, and that's the big one for all of us, you know, the possibilities you know, and the actualities of our sickness and the actualities of our growing old into account, then we are bound to suffer. There is no doubt about that. We are bound to suffer quite drastically often. So the Buddha is really trying to direct us in our attention to place our attention into the things worthy of our attention to perhaps cease this outward searching for happiness, contentment, peace again I'll leave it to you to choose whichever word works in things outside of ourselves now that could be the material goods, it could be the other person, or it could be this mythological realm um, of the changeless or the deathless somewhere. One thing, of course, that Buddhism, again, in many ways is so different from many, i put this in scare quotes, religious traditions, is its lack of any deity. It does not have any god at the back of it. There is no... God underwriting whatever's going on, no you know no supreme being or anything of that sort. the Buddha is placing the reliance you know placing the responsibility on every one of us to rely to ourselves again at the end of his life, he's saying, "Be refuges unto yourself, be lights or lamps unto yourself you know? don't look towards external things exterior authorities trust to your own experience and trust to at an experience that when it's examined deeply will find that there is a stillness and freedom within it it's not obvious it's not easy to see it's so not easy to see that um, when he first discovers this when he first discovers in some senses, the the path and the teaching which are revealed to him. He says, I don't want to teach this. It's just too difficult. Nobody's going to get this at all. He has to be almost persuaded uh, to teach this material because it's difficult to get. However, he does teach it and he gives us a very powerful method for beginning to analyse our own experience and if there's one thing I say, if ever any of you feel inclined to look at the original texts, there's nothing within those texts which is not practical. They are all practically oriented. There is no theory in them. The Buddha speaks directly and he doesn't hold anything back. It's required for us to gain some kind of liberation ourselves. And it's the liberation from confusion. That confusion which leads to our perplexity and to our suffering, and to our unwise attention, to an ignoble search for things, and to looking at the exterior for our happiness. So the attention really is turned backwards. in searching for the heart of the wisdom, heart of understanding, becomes a search which is directed to looking in to what's going on within us. The world is as the world is. He uses a word for this in Pali, which is tatata, it's suchness, it's isness, it just is the way it is, yeah? and that's changing. <clears throat> it was changing in his time, and it continues to change today. We talk about you know, a boom in technologies, a time of increasing political ferment. A time of restlessness, of basically a time when we can't be certain of anything at the moment. Yet actually, when you look back two and a half thousand years ago, that was the Buddha's time as well. Exactly the same. What's changed? Well, the technologies have changed, the means of communication have changed. Actually, the situation in the world doesn't change at all. So if that doesn't change, what can change? This is really what the Buddha is saying. What can change? He says, "Who's going to untangle the tangle? Yeah, and there's this, there's this mess and mat of a tangle, which actually we call our lives. Yeah, who's going to untangle it? Well, nobody else other than you is going to untangle it. Yeah, so the responsibility is firmly on you. It's in sort of contemporary terms, I suppose, it's a self-help technique." I don't like those words, but you know that's really what it is. Helping you to help yourself by being reliant on your own experience. So even the Buddha's words themselves, the words that any teacher who sits in this position sits up here, you should not take it as an authority. It's something to be questioned, something to be looked at, something to be examined against your own experience. The Tibetans are very fond of saying there's one particular passage in many, many Tibetan texts. It's repeated over and over again. over and again. I can't actually find a textual justification in in other texts earlier than that. But it goes something like this. If a man was to hand you a piece of gold, what would you do with it? He said the fool would accept it as it is. The wise man would take it and have it assayed, weighed, tested to see if it was gold rather than just iron pyrites, which is just fool's gold. That's what the wise person does. So any words which are given to you, you even the words of the teachings, have to come under examination in terms of your own experience. Now some things will be outside of your ken at this stage. Well, if that's the case, you don't have to do anything with them. Stick where you are. Examine where you are. So this movement for change, is movement towards happiness, contentment, peace, etc., etc., can only come from a self-motivation, from an intention which arises within to examine the conditions that we bring to the world that makes it this dirty space, that makes it this duckering world. So we have to examine the causes and conditions which are within our own minds. And if one thing has characterized the Buddhist tradition for two and a half thousand years, from the, from the teachings of its founder to even the teachings which go on these days, they're generally about mental transformation. transformation transforming the mind from bringing unwholesome material re- rooted in greed, hatred and delusion into the world and spreading it around, because we don't keep it to ourselves, do we? If you've got a good misery going on, why keep it to yourself? (laughs) Just spread it around in the world. Well, instead of bringing that stuff to the world, to examine your experience and find within your experience also the more positive qualities. We focus a lot on the problem, but there is also that which is the solution within our own minds, the wholesome conditions that we can bring to experience. And often these are what I would refer to as heartfelt conditions. Yeah, there is nothing cold about metta, about the condition of kindness and friendliness. There is nothing cold about karuna, compassion, that we can bring to the world. There is nothing cold about generosity, generosity. And I'm not talking here merely about material things. It's nothing to do with that. Even the material stuff that's given is an outcome of of the generosity of spirit that one has. These are not cold intellectual concepts. They're really the fundamental emotions, and there's many more of them, but these are the important ones, that drive, in some senses, the Buddhist path. And really there are questions about whether we can do these for ourselves. Can we be friendly and compassionate and generous and all the other virtues which I haven't named towards ourselves as the starting place um, for, and the finishing place perhaps as well for our examination of the problems. These are so fundamental, they are so important. I can't underestimate their importance in what we bring to our experience. Often vipassana is characterized as as attention and looking, and you've heard me say these words over the day, again and again and again and again. It's not good enough just to see. Anybody can see. You you can see very clearly, but you can also see very coldly. What tempers the coldness, that eye of wisdom? What tempers it is the heart. That's what tempers it. So it's not good enough in many senses to have this very clear seeing, this satisampajanya, as it's called, clear comprehension or clear seeing. You have to learn to love what you see. To love the world in all of its malfunctioning. To love others in all of their malfunctioning. Because actually, they're not malfunctioning probably any different to you. Because we all are at this stage so it's to learn to have this love and this compassion towards what we see and then a completely different relationship with things starts to emerge it's not a a relationship of a cold, brutal condemnatory, judgmental seeing that it can be if it's just merely cold there is a warmth to that seeing In many ways, that's one of the things that the world often lacks, is this sense of warmth, this, these heartfelt qualities. So the Buddha's message really encompasses all of these things, you know, the clear comprehension, but the seeing with metta, metta as a, a way of beginning to see and cognize the world. If we don't develop that, then it can be, as I say, this very cold, very distanced way of looking at things. Almost arrogant. I see the world screwing up, but I'm not really part of it. I'm outside here on the edges looking in. As I think James Joyce puts it in one of his stories, like an outcast from life's feast. Staring in at the world. Well, that is not what the Buddha is intending. That's not what he's intending. The movement that the Buddha intends us to take in our journey, in our examination, is into the heart of the world, into the heart of the world's difficulties. Because the world's difficulties are our difficulties as well. If the world's difficulties arise out of greed, aversion and delusion because what is the world other than every individual greed, aversion and delusion written large and probably formed into countries and corporations and all sorts of things, then the greed, aversion and delusion that we have any control over at all is our own. And this is where we have to start. Starting to uncover something like the stillness in the turmoil, now, even sometimes on a brief retreat like this, you can get a glimpse of it. It might be only a few seconds. It might be you know, a minute. Um, and I'm probably saying over perhaps even a whole weekend. It might be longer. I'm perhaps being slightly negative here, pessimistic. But it's that, that stillness, that tranquility, that feeling of wholeness that arises, albeit very briefly that is a glimpse of this stillness, a stillness within the chaos almost. However, this is not a simple, how would I say, a sort of pacific attitude of mind, which means that we don't do things in the world, we continue to do things, even when we develop this stillness, this wisdom, this way of being in the world, which is not agitated in the way that, all things around us can be agitated. Notice how the agitation is contagious as well. You know, it's almost like a knock on. Somebody else is agitated, you get agitated, and then you pass that on to somebody else. You know, stop the chain reaction. Yeah. Develop calmness. Develop ways of being which are much more wholesome, which help us to meet people. And all of these practices, even the very simple practices we're doing over this weekend are there to get us to examine our minds, examine the agitation, and discover the stillness and the quietness and the tranquillity. It is often there, but covered over over by our frenetic lifestyles, the ways that we live our lives. However, even when we discover the stillness, it doesn't mean not to act. T.S. Eliot, in one of his poems in The Four Quartets, said to be still and still moving. Into a deeper intensity. This is the intensity of experience, the intensity of living life, not being as I see so often written in books, popular books on Buddhism, detachment. That's a word I hate. (laughs) I really—it's one of those words. It just gets me, you know, because you know Buddhism talks about the problems of attachment. Yes, but detachment sounds obviously—it's its antonym; it's its opposite but it's not really what's being indicated in Buddhism. Buddhists don't become detached, or you know, in this world, probably semi-detached. <laughs> you know, they don't become that at all. The opposite here, strangely enough, of attachment, which is this grasping after holding on the avarice that I spoke a little bit about in terms of material possessions, the opposite here is to move into this engagement, a correct engagement with life. So, that you're not again an outcast from life's feast. You're actually there in the heart of things, but with a different mind state to the mind state which is part of what Buddhists term samsara this going round in circles, experiencing things in this circular manner, creating all the problems that you have done in the past and you will do in the future because you have this compulsion to repeat. Now, how are we going to get into all this? You know, how are we going to make this move? Well, you've probably guessed, haven't you? <laughs> part of it, and I do say part of it, because it's not that entire strategy. Part of it is through cultivation. Cultivating these qualities. Cultivating the sorts of qualities that we've been talking about as we've practiced together today. The qualities of being able to examine the what is going on. There's your mantra again. What's going on? What's going on in something as simple as breathing? What's going on in something as simple as walking? You all walk, you all breathe, otherwise you'd be dead. You know? How many of you reflected on it? Even briefly, on what the process is. Now that isn't an end in itself, but it's partly a training of the attention to bring that quality of attention that you develop by looking at something which is so fundamental, as I say, it's our life. To breathe is to be alive. Yeah. It's the most wonderful meditative object. We, can take, we take it with us, it's fully transportable. Yeah. You can use it throughout the day. I was suggesting to one group earlier today you know, you could have one minute breathings every hour where you concentrate on the breath just taking yourself for an know, if you did that, I don't know, 15 hours a day there's 15 minutes of meditation you've done today already (laughs) you don't need to do those and others hopefully you will but it's this quality of attention that you're learning to develop out of paying attention in this particular way to really, really obvious things it's honing the mind, training the mind to be able to then to look at the more difficult areas of our confusion. Yeah. what is going on in the mind as you probably well know is happening so fast that it's very very difficult to catch it isn't it now in so called Buddhist theory we talk about things like I don't know let's give you an example one I usually use it's quite a good example you know, here we have they say the relationship between contacting something I see something I get a feeling from it I like it, I dislike it, or I neither like nor dislike it. I'm then into craving. And in craving, I crave to have or I crave to avoid. And if I get it, the avoidance, or the having of it, then I get attached to it. Very good theoretical model, isn't it? It's a nice little model. It works. It's actually what's going on in a lot of our behavior. But actually what happens is this. I find myself eating a chocolate bar. That's what happens. (laughs) Cut out all the other stuff. I'm there with the thing. I'm attached to it. I'm eating it. Because it's happened so fast. You haven't seen the steps. You haven't seen the triggers that lead from this to this to this to this. All I see is the, the resultant. That's where I am. So how are we going to get to seeing all that? Well, the only way to get to see that is to start to slow down the mind. To start to be able to pay attention. I know I keep stressing this word, but to start to pay attention. To start to see clearly. To start to remember what I'm doing. This Pali word that's used in Satipatthana, Some of you might know this word, mindfulness. The word sati means to remember, to recall what you're doing. Not to be in a state of forgetfulness. Now, a lot of ordinary experience is simply a state of forgetfulness. Forgetting what you're doing. In fact, distracting yourself much of the time. Now, to get into the problem that we are... We're not just a problem, but we also have these beautiful factors, as the tradition says, within us. We have these wonderful factors. We have these factors of kindness and compassion and generosity and clarity and equanimity. We have these within us. These are our heritage as well as all the bad stuff, if you like. This is part of the, the mind. The mind, according to the early tradition, is like a soup. You know, it's composed of lots of different ingredients, Uh, Unfortunately, in the soup of ordinary experience, it's all of the negative qualities that are floating around on the top, on the surface. All the good qualities, all the nice bits, somehow buried deeper in the soup. Now what we've got to do is somehow skim off the top and let the other bits rise to the surface. It's not very edifying, I'm sorry about the metaphor, but (laughs) you'll have to put up with it at this time of night. So, we're really trying to uncover the other side of our, if you like, mental heritage. The factors which are described in Pali as subana, beautiful factors that are there in the mind. They rise to the surface, and let us not get negative about this, they rise to the surface in our ordinary experience, but they don't hang around too long, generally. So we all exhibit at some point kindness. We all exhibit at some point generosity. We all touch calm from time to time even if it's only deeply absorbed in a book or watching a film or whatever your hobby might be that really takes you out of yourself we all touch that we all have insights which we probably call intuitions and generally ignore them that's generally what happens with them so we all have these things they're all of our potentialities they're there, they're present in our experience The question is how do we build on them? How do we stabilise them, maintain them and make them something that we live much more on a day-to-day basis rather than a simple ad hoc basis that we do? That is the challenge of this. And the challenge starts with simply paying attention. Learning to see what is going on. Slowing down the process. The mind is like, I don't know, a cinema film. It's, you know, all those little frames joined together, going very, very, very fast, give us a cinema film. Yeah? So it's like slowing it down, so I begin to see the individual frames, the what is actually going on here. Without it, without seeing that, there is simply this confusion delusion. Yeah? This simple confusion delusion that we're in the world. Not knowing a way around. Now the Buddhist tradition, I'll finish off on this and then open it up to see if there are any questions. The Buddhist tradition really talks about not, as you heard me say last night, enlightenment but awakening. Waking up. That means, I've said this so many times in this room, I can't remember how many times I've said it. This means actually moving from a sleepwalking state into a full wakefulness. You yeah. If there's any meaning to the term Buddhism, which is a term I actually don't like personally, it's (laughs) wake-upism. That's really what it's about. Learning to wake up. Waking up to the way things are. Waking up to the way things are so that you don't keep on repeating the same mistakes again and again and again and again and again. Not getting involved in the same problems simply because I don't see clearly. So the keys to this waking up are the beginning to see clearly, the paying attention, the sati sampajanya, yeah. this wise attention that's developed. Put your attention on things which will can deliver, perhaps what you're looking for in terms of the values and the ways that we want to live, the meanings that you might, might want to see in your lives rather than place them in the things which are there in the world and they're all very pleasurable, but ultimately all extremely ephemeral. They won't give us anything lasting. And to make this movement from looking outwards for things to make me happy, as you heard me say, including others, to make this movement to beginning to look into the inner confusion. Awakening those factors, those wholesome mental factors, beautiful factors. I like that phrase, I love the word beautiful factors, sabana factors, within the mind, which are there. And learning through this to live a life which is far more full of ease. That doesn't mean that the world is suddenly going to change in terms of becoming less violent, less aggressive, and all the things that we see within the world. What will have changed is your world. That is what will have changed quite radically. And the qualities that you bring to the ordinary world and to your day-to-day encounter with other human beings. And, I might add, with the non-human as well. Here, It's truly a revolution which is spoken about in the Buddhist tradition. I, re- I always think that Buddhist books... You know, Particularly the early texts ought to come with a health warning, which is, you know, this could truly change your life. Because they can. If you really begin to take this seriously, it can really, really, utterly change your life. To take it from a self-centred search, and I don't mean that negatively, because that's all we know. We only operate from the sense of self at this moment in time, to something which is far more selfless, and far more kinder, far more generous and far more compassionate and that's really what's engaged as a little snapshot in searching for the heart of wisdom ok, I'll finish now I think I've probably said enough for this evening I'll just leave it open for a few questions yes You have to speak up because it's a long way off. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, in the ephemeral changing of things, that any idea or concept of something not changing mm-hmm. He did indeed. He did indeed. And I knew this question would come up. I'm glad you brought it up. (laughs) Because it gives me a chance to talk a little bit about this. Because I think, again, the way that's often read within the tradition is completely wrong. It almost points to something the Buddha himself spoke very strongly against, to a metaphysical idea of something which doesn't change. Really what he's trying to say... As far as I can understand it from my study of the early texts in, in quite a bit of depth over the you know, kind of last 10 years or so, really what he's trying to say is that from the point of view of samsaric existence, which is based on greed, aversion, and delusion, and is constantly swirling around in its various psychological manifestations of greed, aversion, and delusion. <laughs> That those are the conditions themselves which condition that Sangsaring experience. I'm saying Sangsaring because it's a verb, actually, in, in the Pali. You know, it's, it's a condition that we find ourselves in. From the point of view of the nirvana experience, which again is an experience, again, because in the Pali it's a verb form, from the point of view of that which is rooted in and conditioned by the very opposites of that which the Sangsari experience is conditioned by. So instead of greed, aversion, and delusion, we've got something that's conditioned by generosity, friendliness, wisdom, or understanding. From the stand- that standpoint, this appears to be deathless. Death can only occur in a sense of this rising and falling, this rising and falling of Sangsaric entities the conditions of passing and rising and passing away and rising and passing away that's going on. From the point of view of the nirvana experience, it's as if, it, well, it's empty of death. Death can only occur in the other. It doesn't mean there is a metaphysical unchanging entity though. It's still a conditioned entity in the sense that it relies on the conditions of generosity, friendliness and understanding and the Buddha himself of course the Buddha himself when he attained awakening doesn't pop off to a nirvana ring heaven yeah? he stays in the world and according to the legends he teaches for 45 years and he teaches out of this nirvana experience so that's what I really think and it's only actually based on one actually two passages in the Pali Canon. that idea you only find him uttering it twice that's all So that's the kind of response to your your query. Uh, Yes. When you say he's teaching from his nirvana experience, does that mean that he's constantly in this experience? He's constantly experiencing it, yes. That's that's right. He's constantly experiencing that nirvana ring. That nirvana ring actually is simply, if you like, actually let me explain that word a little bit. So the word is fraught often with presuppositions about what it is nirvana for those who any of you are sort of linguistically minded nirvanering or nirvana in pali and sanskrit or nibbana is it in pali is an intransitive verb it literally means gone out and what is gone out is very specific what has gone out are the fires of greed aversion and delusion and in the going out of the greed, fires of greed, aversion and delusion, there has arisen the opposite in that. And so out of the arising of the opposite there is a completely different experience of the world. This is nirvanaering in life. This is what's generally referred to nirvana in life. Mm-hmm. He should have put uh, things, um, causes and conditions that um, that um, continually wandering experiences in that context. I can't say there's an unconditioned. It isn't unconditioned, not in that sense. It's un It well, when he says unconditioned, this is you've got to hear these words very clearly. When he says unconditioned, it means it's not conditioned by the factors that condition Sankharang experience. It doesn't mean unconditioned completely. It means it's, it's, the conditioning factors for nirvana or nirvanaring are completely different from those that condition sangsara. That's what he means. So when he's talking about the unconditioned, he's only just com- comparing it to the nirvanaring experience and the sangsaring experience. It's a comparison, basically. Sorry, I did not follow that. Um, I was thinking, so if, if you don't experience death, mm. then does that mean you don't experience separation? No. This death is metaphorical here, it's not literal death. In terms of samsara experiences, there's a constant, if you like, little dyings all the time. One state has arisen and it passes away. Another state has arisen, this is the stuff you've been observing all day. In your own mind, something arises, something passes away, something arises, something passes away. When it's talking about a deathless, again, coming back to that phrase that's being used, it's saying that there is this experience, which is a conditioned experience because it's all the psychology, you know, it's the psychology arises out of, yeah, I keep repeating these phrases, but generosity, kindness, and understanding then that experience, is all the psychological understanding is arising out of those things, but they're not simply arising and passing away in the same way. Why wouldn't they um, arise and pass away just like the others? Because they're rooted in things which are not ultimately arising and passing away, which is the establishment, the firm establishment, because there's nothing in a sense can knock them out of the way of those three factors, those three wholesome factors. Yes. Yeah, so, they're the, they're the roots for all our psychological wholesomeness if you experience it. Yeah. So those, in a sense, don't have any opposition. There's nothing that can displace them anymore. In our, in our minds, there's a mixture of both, You know, with the dominance of the unwholesome as opposed to the wholesome roots. Um, how do they relate to pure awareness? They don't. <laughs> That's not a term the Buddha ever uses. Himself. That's a term that grows up in the later traditions, pure awareness. The Buddha doesn't speak about pure awareness at all. In fact, he says there is no such thing as pure. he not speak about the, that which perceives all of the mind states? No, nope, he doesn't. It's very specific. And I'm, I said, that's why I made uh, um, a kind of little caveat last night, which I said, you know, really I'm talking about the earliest strata of the traditions, really from the early Pali Buddhist texts. In the early Pali Buddhist text, the Buddha says that awareness or consciousness only arises with an object. So it's not pure. Consciousness and object arise together. And there can be no consciousness or awareness without an object. This is very, very clear in the early text. This gets changed over the course of Buddhist history, and so you end up with things like the notion of pure awareness, an awareness which is unsullied by whatever In a sense, is presented to it, but that is not the early tradition. That doesn't appear to be the tradition of the Buddha himself. But something grows up much later, and it's actually much closer to forms of Hinduism. That notion. Um, Could you say a little bit more about uh, the difference between uh, engagement and attachment? Yes, and attachment is that which doesn't let go. Basically, I mean, it's obviously part of the etymology of it. Attachment is, how shall I put it, the very nature of the problem that we're engaged in. In the sense that we're deeply attached to things we should be letting go of. We're entrapped, actually, by the things we let go of. By the things that we don't let go of. So, our lack of freedom is often due to... Let's just talk about the material things. The material things we have. Um, we have all these material things um, and even when we hate them we don't let them go or very rarely you we know, very rarely get rid of them we don't like things being taken from us we don't like letting go of them or giving them away sometimes we do this but it's, it's quite rare I actually had a, heard a very funny conversation with, I, think I said it to one of the last groups when I was teaching here a very conversation, a funny conversation among my neighbours over the garden fence which went something like this I couldn't possibly lend it to you because I don't use it myself. <laughs> Just how bizarre is that? <laughs> you know? And it shows, in a sense, and it's a very graphic illustration of attachment. I can't possibly lend it to you because I don't use it myself. <laughs> really weird. However, you know, what we're talking about is this deep, deep, deep attachment to. Psychological states, even attachment to our own suffering here. There's a deep attachment to it. Because, and I'm not going to go into it because we haven't got time this evening, but part of the problem with suffering and its forms that it takes for us individually is we get attached to it and it forms part of our identity. I know who I am because I suffer in this particular way. You, know, you can see this with people who get you know definable diseases and illnesses. I know who I am now because I'm X, my doctor told me. <laughs> you know, it becomes part, of, you know, wrapped into the notion of our identity, um, plus all of the attachments we have to others, which are not actually about relationship, they're about holding on and actually holding on not to the person as they are, but to an image that we have of them rather than the actuality of the, who that person is. Um, the Buddha again graphically puts this in one of the texts in a, in a lovely little metaphor. He says it's like this. It's this, this is how you trap a monkey. How you trap a monkey is you bury a little bowl in the ground with a long thin neck, you put something the monkey wants into it, the monkey reaches its paw in, grabs hold of what's at the bottom of it, it can't get out now. But there's nothing holding it. All he's got to do is let go of what it's holding. That's all. So it's actually trapped by its own attachment. I think it's a wonderful metaphor for human being. That is what I mean. Now, engagement is different to attachment. Engagement means moving into life without this entrapment with it. Dealing with life's problems as they arise. Dealing with situations as they arise. Ethics as a continuing unfolding of the difficulties of life rather than the set of prescriptions that we apply to life and every situation we find ourselves in is an ethical situation this is real engagement this takes mindfulness to use the Buddhist, buddhist jargon word these days this takes awareness or mindfulness to move through life with this it takes that degree of attention which i've been talking to you about tonight to move into that without actually getting entrapped, getting attached to what's going on. Now, when I say it's not attachment, but it's engagement, this obviously has a caring dimension to it. You care about others, but not in an attached way. You care for them in such a way that you can let them go. And that's a fundamental, that's a fundamental quality, I think, of Love. Love is that which allows to let go. It doesn't hold on. Hold on simply becomes acquisition again. You know. So there's a very, very great qualitative difference between the two. Yeah. Just one last question. You mentioned identity in the context of attachment. Yeah. Do you think from all forms of identity are forms of attachment? Um, quick answer is yes. Yes, I do. There are forms of attachment to ideas, to position, to power, to wealth, to illness, to all sorts of things. Human beings are deeply often searching for identities, you know, for a sense of their identity. But there is no, eye. no, that's right. There's no. Well, there's no fixed eye. That's the whole point about it. There's no fixed eye. It's not that, that there is no. I that we use relatively in language and refer to refer to ourselves. If we suddenly became awakened as the Buddha did, we're not going to stop referring to ourselves. You know, even he talks, talks about himself. But it's the lack of fixity. Identity means this literally, doesn't it? It means the same thing. That's what it's really talking about. It's the same thing. There is no identity. We are all amorphous. Yeah. We are all terrified of the freedom that actually lack of identity brings us, so we go out searching for something jean paul Sartre actually had a wonderful um, analogy of this. he said effectively we 're so terrified of our freedom, we wanted to be like come like tables and chairs. Tables and chairs didn 't seem to change very much, and they seemed to have a stability to them um, that human beings don 't you know so he said basically the search for most human beings was to turn themselves into something like a table or a chair, with an identity, or a degree of lack of change. Now there are many, many strategies that we have for doing that, isn't there? You know, I think particularly, um, let's say roles, responsibilities. That's a very good way. You know, parent, lover, mother, father. Getting into professions. You know, whatever your profession happens to be. You know. But we don't do that. We buy into these. This is what we see ourselves as. And whatever it is that you have in terms of that role, responsibility, position, power, whatever it is, from the lowest to the highest, you're going to lose it at some point. It's going to be stripped away. Even the person in the highest power will lose that power at some point. Again, the Pali Kalan is populated with stories of people losing their power, you know, thinking they've you know, got it made, they're the king, the Rajan, and, and they're going to be there forever. And then suddenly the sun deposes them or something. Yeah, this is ancient India. So no matter what identity it is, it's very, very tenuous that we have. It's very, very tenuous, and we cling to it or attach ourselves to it at our peril because we are bound to suffer uh, when, it's, when we lose it at some point. This is why people are often so, not all, but a lot of people are very depressed when they retire, when they lose their role in life, you know, their position. Or when children leave home, another classic one, when the role is now gone, it's transformed, it's changed. So, yes, that was the longer bit to the short answer. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.